0: Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis, that first book of the Bible. The beginnings, the origin of things. The book of Genesis. The title of our message today is God's People Tempted. And we're going to be in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. That's our text. And so as you find that, I'm going to ask if you are able to, if you would stand And uh, let's just devote our attention for just a moment to the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read. You follow along in your copy. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? the Word of God for His church today. You may be seated. What are you waiting for? Just do it. It's not like it's going to hurt anyone. No one is ever going to know. It's just this one time. It's going to be so much fun. Everyone else is doing it you ever heard those words before? Maybe they were spoken to you out loud by someone. Maybe they were spoken silently to yourself inside of you. When have you heard those words? Most likely it's been in moments of temptation. Moments of temptation. Now sometimes we use the word temptation jokingly. Like when somebody offers us our fifth scoop of ice cream. And we say, don't tempt me. (laughs) Don't tempt me. But the temptation we're going to talk about today is no laughing matter at all. The temptation we see in our passions today is a persuasion to sin against a holy God. That's what temptation is. It's being persuaded, deceived to sin against the holy God. And if we take God seriously, then we will take sin, which is rebellion against God, seriously. And if we take sin seriously, then we will take temptation to sin seriously. We will be aware that temptation is all around us. We will understand the roots of temptation. What is happening inside of us when we are being tempted? And we will do battle against temptation using the most lethal weapon available, which I believe is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we study Genesis chapter three, verses one through five, Church, I think we learned this. That the reality of temptation should drive us to Jesus for divine rescue. The reality of temptation should drive us to Jesus for divine rescue. Now we spent several weeks studying through the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, we've spent far more time than I thought we would when we began Genesis chapter 2. And and even now, I still think there's a whole lot more that we could say and learn from Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 as well. Now, in the first two chapters, we saw God creating the world. And His creation of the world serves as the foundation. This is why there's just so much there and why it it demands that we spend much time in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 uh, serves as the foundation for understanding who God is, where we came from, and what our purpose is in life. Genesis 1 through 2 are extremely important for us to read and reread and study and apply to our lives. But one of the greatest things, I think, that stands out in chapters 1 through 2, if we just step back and look at all of chapters 1 through 2 as a whole, the thing one of the things that should stand out is that everything is good. Everything in Genesis chapter 1 through 2 is good. Everything about God's creation, everything about God's design is good. In fact, from God's perspective, it's very Good is what God says. Everything is perfect. I mean, a perfect ecosystem, a perfect garden, perfect food, and perfect water sources, uh, perfect relationships between God and humans, and between humans and the rest of creation, and between human and human. I mean, chapter 2 ends with Adam and Eve enjoying a perfect marriage. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Why? Because things didn't stay perfect. Things didn't stay very good. Chapter 3 is also a foundational chapter for understanding the Bible, our lives, and the world around us. Chapter 1 through 2 describe our creation. Chapters 3 describes our fall. And by the word fall, I just mean our fall as humanity and, and creation from the perfection of god's original creation a fall from that perfect world that god had made and because chapter three is so important i want us to spend several weeks unpacking what god has revealed to us in his description of the fall of mankind these first three chapters of the bible are extremely important and so i don't want us to rush through them as we study through this chapter, my prayer is that in each section, church, we will be driven to Jesus. You're going to hear me say that several times, many times over the next several weeks. My prayer is that as we study the fall of man, we will be driven to Jesus Christ. Because while creation was the beginning of the story, church, Genesis chapter 3 and the fall is not the ending of the story. Praise God. got to summarize in chapter 3, sin enters God's good creation. That's what Genesis 3 is really about. Sin entering into God's good creation. And, and then we see the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3. But we also see the grace of God towards sinners in Genesis chapter 3. But just like in our lives, before there was sin, was temptation. Right? Before you commit a sin, before you commit whatever sin you committed this morning... Say, so how can you assume that? Well, I just know us. We sin in our minds. Just a wrong thought or a, or a, or a complaining thought. I mean, just a thought of complaint is unpleasing to the Lord. And so, what came first? There's it it a temptation that came. Chapter 3 shifts gears abruptly. We're just starting to enjoy this perfect world that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 through 2. This perfect garden and this perfect marriage when we read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now at this point, our minds just race race ahead of the text. Uh, we see serpent and crafty and most of us know this story. We've read it probably many times, and and we just start having all of these questions about this serpent. And so let me just go ahead and say up front, the Bible does not answer all of our questions about this serpent, especially not here in this passage. All we know from this passage is that he tries to persuade the woman to disobey the command of God. Verse 1 tells us he was more crafty, Than the other beasts of the field which God had made. Now, if you study this word that's translated crafty, it might be translated a little different way in in your translation. Uh, There's a lot of different ways you can translate it. This word is used a good many times throughout the Old Testament, this Hebrew word. Sometimes it's used in a positive way. Sometimes it's used to refer to, to someone who is thinking carefully and wisely about what to do in a situation, thinking in a prudent way about how to act. But sometimes this word is used in a negative sense. It's used to refer to someone who is scheming about doing something evil. And the context determines the meaning. In this context it's used, obviously, in the negative sense. You skip ahead to verse 13, you see that this serpent deceived the woman. What was he trying to do in his craftiness? He was trying to deceive. He was trying to lead into sin. When you deceive someone, you conceal your real motives of evil behind a facade of pleasantries. You don't play all your cards. You lie. You twist the truth. You try to talk someone into something which will bring harm without giving them all the facts. You promise certain things, but then the result is the opposite of what you promise. As Scripture unfolds, we come to learn that this serpent is none other than Satan, who is called the deceiver, the enemy of God. But the point of this passage is not to teach us everything we may want to know about Satan. The point of this passage is to teach us about the first temptation which led to the first sin of humanity. And the first thing I think we learn about temptation is just simply this we live in a world, church, where temptation is real. We live in a world where temptation is real. Now that might seem like a no-brainer statement. But friends, if it's a no-brainer statement, then I'm afraid we often act as though we don't have a brain. Because we often live as if temptation was not a real thing in the world in which we live. We often go through the day with a lack of awareness that temptation is real and that it's all around us and it is even inside of us. I mean, how often do you, and I ask myself the same question, how often you wake up in the morning and before your feet hit the floor, you think it's time for battle. My mind is getting ready just to be flooded with temptations to sin. The world that I'm getting ready to walk into is filled with temptations to sin. And I have an enemy who wants to destroy me today by tempting me to sin. How often do we wake up with that thought on our mind? Certainly we wake up with concerns. We we wake up with all kinds of concerns. We might be concerned about the test that we've got to take at school that day. or, Or if there's enough milk for breakfast. Or or if our boss is going to be in a good mood or a bad mood. Or we might wake up concerned if the rain is going to hold off just long enough so that we can get our grass cut before it comes. We wake up, church, concerned about a lot of things the day may bring. But do we wake up aware of the thousands of temptations that we are going to face, perhaps even before lunchtime? Church, if there was a tempter in the Garden of Eden, then we shouldn't be surprised that there is a tempter in our fallen world. If Eve, if this first woman faced temptation in her perfect state, we should expect to face temptation in our fallen state. Our lives are filled with temptations. Temptations to yell at our kids. Temptations to lie to our spouse. Temptations to cheat on a test or on our taxes. Temptations to lust. Temptations to be greedy rather than generous. Temptations to repay evil for evil. Temptations to withhold forgiveness and harbor bitterness towards someone. Temptations to disobey our parents. Temptations to be lazy. Temptations to worship our church traditions rather than obey the great commission of Jesus Temptations to speak out of anger and rage. Temptations to ignore the needs of others around us. Temptations to waste away our time on social media or just watching the news over and over and over. Temptations to exclude others or to treat others differently just because they look different than us. And the list could go on and on and on. The Apostle Peter wrote to first century Christians and he said this, Be sober-minded. Be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The Apostle Paul wrote to first century Christians and he said this, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, we must be vigilant. We must be aware. We must be on guard because we live in a world Full of temptations. We live in a world where temptation is real. Now, the temptations that we face come in all different shapes and sizes. The temptations that we face come wrapped in a whole host of a variety of packaging. But I think think that all temptation boils down to this. I think we see this in our passage today. Whether we trust that God is good or whether we trust that God is not good and our way, our understanding is better. I really think you could boil down all temptation to that. Whether we trust that God is good or whether we believe that He's not good and therefore we need to come up with a better way. The second truth we learn about temptation in this passage is this. Temptation is always a question of trusting God's goodness. Temptation is always a question of trusting God's goodness. We might be tempted to think that there's some sort of disconnect between the first temptation in the garden and our temptations today. I mean, just think about the setting here. There's a tree in their yard, we could say, in their garden that they're not supposed to eat from. Well, any of you have a tree in your yard that God told you not to eat from? There may be some trees that wisdom would say you shouldn't eat from this tree. I mean, uh, it's not going to be good. Pine cones chomp into that. It's not going to taste like an apple, right? Uh, not going to taste like a pear. But but is there a tree in your garden that God specifically forbids? That all right, don't don't eat from that tree. No, I, I don't I don't think so. Is that if that's true, then is there some disconnect? between the temptation in the garden that that Eve faced as she has this conversation with Satan and the temptations we face today? Is there anything we can learn about temptation from this first temptation in the Garden of Eden that is similar to our battle against temptation today? Church, I believe there is. Because I think deep down the temptations we face today are no different than the temptation that the first humans faced in the Garden of Eden. Every time we're tempted, we are faced with a choice to trust that God is good and should therefore be obeyed or to not trust that God is good and therefore should be disobeyed because I think that my way is better. Let me share with you from the conversation between the serpent and the woman four ways in which we see this battle over um, whether or not God's good can be trusted portrayed here, how it's lived out in this very, very short conversation. Let me give you these four ways. Number one is this. We are tempted to reject God's good word. We are tempted to reject God's good word. God has given us a good word, and one of the parts of temptation is being tempted to reject God's good word. The very first words we have of Satan are meant to lead the woman to doubt God's word. Verse 1 continues by saying, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What is Satan doing? He's trying to cast doubt on the words of God. Did God actually say... Now, he doesn't outright contradict God's word yet, but he does seek to cast doubt upon God's word and what he has said. Did God actually say? And then he misquotes God. God didn't say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Instead, God had said you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. See what he's doing there? We'll talk about this in just a moment. He's casting doubt on God's character the serpent's words here are filled with deception deception begins by tempting the woman to reject god's word and unfortunately we see that she takes the bait she takes the bait verse two through three the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but god said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die now at first that sounds like a pretty good comeback well, she, she said what God said. She's standing her ground correcting the serpent. But unfortunately, what she does is actually begin to join the serpent in rejecting God's word. She adds something at the end that God did not, did not say. She says that God said they would die for not only eating the fruit, but for touching it as well. The problem with that is that God didn't say that. God never said that. She's attributing words to God which he never actually said. And In just a moment, we'll talk about why why that's wrong. She added those words. But ultimately here, she's just saying God said this when God didn't say this. Rejection of God's word. Satan cast doubt upon God's word. The woman adds to God's word. And then we see the serpent clearly contradict God's word. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That is a total lie. That is a blatant, outright lie. God had said, "You shall surely die," and Satan said, "You shall not surely die." Rightly did Jesus say of the devil, from John chapter 8:44. I'll read the words of Jesus. He was a murderer. Jesus said from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth. You catch that? Nothing to do with the truth. Even when he bakes his temptations in half-truths, Jesus says, I have truth. has nothing to do with the whole truth. Jesus goes on and says, because there is no truth in him. Which means you can rest assured that anything Satan tempts you with, anything he says, there's no truth there. Because there's no truth in him. Jesus went on and he said, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, every temptation is a temptation to reject God's word. Did God really say marriage is to be between a man and a woman only? Did God really say covenanting my neighbor's house or my neighbor's car or my neighbor's wife is wrong? Did God really say I should treat others how I want to be treated? Did God really say to be kind to others and to give unlimited forgiveness to those who wronged me? Did God really say those things? self temptation works. In church, the only way we're going to know what God really says, I'll just throw this in as a point of application, the only way we're going to really know what God really says is if we have our noses and our eyes in God's Word. If we're reading God's Word and memorizing God's Word and studying God's Word, so that when Satan says, to God really say, we know what God has and hasn't said. But there's more. When we question God's Word, I mentioned this a moment ago, we question God's character. When we question God's Word, we question God's character. The second way we call God's goodness into question is this. We are tempted to question God's good motive. We're tempted to reject His word, His good word, and we're tempted to question God's good motive. The serpent has told her that she will not die, which makes God out to be a liar. So, what Satan is doing, he's basically telling the woman, "God lied to you. God lied to you." He's calling into question God's good motive in giving the command. If God is a liar, it means God must not have humanity's best interests at heart. If he's lying to them, and then the serpent says in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what the serpent is doing? He's calling into question God's motivation for giving that command. The serpent is saying, God only gave this command in order to keep you in the dark. God only gave you this command in order to keep from you knowledge that you ought to have. God only gave you this command to keep you from being like him. There's reason God gave you that command He wants the woman to think that God is holding out on her, that he is keeping something good from her. But of course, we see throughout the rest of this chapter that the opposite is true. God's command was a command which, if obeyed, would have protected humanity from experiencing the destructive effects of disobeying God. This was a command given out of a motivation of good. A, a desire for the flourishing, as we've said, of humanity. A desire for humanity to be protected from rebellion against God. But Satan calls that good motive into question. Perhaps today, one way we hear this, this temptation and calling God's motive into question, um, maybe it sounds like this. Well, God just do not want you to have any fun. God just do not want you to have any fun. He's holding out on you. He's keeping, you, he's keeping you from the good life. And that's what Satan is telling, telling Eve here. God's just out there trying to steal happiness from everyone. Church, God always acts and gives commands and speaks from good motives, not evil motives. And so even when we don't understand the why behind a command of God, we can trust the who, who is giving us the command. And i say that one more time. Even when we don't understand the why behind a command that God gives us, we can trust the who, who is giving that command. He is a good God. And all that He says and does is done and said from a good motive. So we must trust that, knowing that temptation will want us whether that temptation comes from Satan himself or comes from our simple flesh within us, it will call into question God's good motives, and so we need to be on guard against that. The third way we call God's goodness into question is this: we're tempted to subvert God's good order. Church, we're tempted to subvert God's good order. Throughout chapters one through two, we, uh, we've, we've seen that God created this world with a particular order, and we, we call that creation order. Because God has ordered things this way, we can trust that it is a good order and is an order God intends for His creation to follow, to live in, to abide by. In God's creation order, God is sovereign over all of creation. All of creation exists for His glory. He is the supreme ruler. All creation is to obey all that He says. In God's creation order, humans have dominion over the rest of creation. Animals don't rule over humans. Rather, humans rule over animals. In God's creation order, man was created to lead the way in subduing the rest of creation, and woman was created to help the man. Thus, from the beginning, God intended for the wife to submit to the leadership uh, provided by her husband and for her husband to actively and faithfully lead his wife. That's the order. All of creation submitting to the authority of God. All of creation besides humans submitting to the authority of humans. And wives submitting to the leadership of their husbands. But what do we see happening here in Genesis chapter 3? What we see is God's creation order from top to bottom being completely subverted. That means completely turned upside down. Notice what is happening. Instead of submitting to God's word in obedience, remember he's the supreme ruler, the woman is questioning God's word and thus his authority. She's trying to take his place. Instead of ruling over the serpent, this animal here, the woman listens to the serpent. Wait, humans are supposed to be ruling over the animals, not the animals ruling over the humans. This is a subversion of the creation order. Instead of submitting to her husband, the woman acts independently of her husband, even though he is there with her, the text says. And instead of faithfully leading his wife, actively leading his wife, the man passively just keeps quiet, letting his wife stumble into temptation and sin. Church, instead of following God's creation order, they completely ignore it and turn it on its head. As Paul wrote to the Romans, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. It's Romans chapter 1. And church, we do this every time we give into temptation. We subvert God's good order in some way, shape, or form. All temptation, in some way, is a temptation to subvert God's good order. The fourth way we call God's goodness into question is this. We're tempted to forget God's good provision. Church, we are tempted to forget God's good provision. Remember the woman was tempted to think that God was holding out on them? Somehow God was was keeping something from them that they needed that would make their lives better. And so she needs to take matters into her own hands in order to gain the good that God was keeping from them. That's what's happening here. But one of the problems with that line of thinking is that she was forgetting about all the good that God had already provided for them. She was forgetting about all the good that God had already provided for them. And whenever, church, we forget what God has already given us, we often exaggerate whatever it is we think God hasn't given us. When we forget all the good that God has done, we start again calling into question God's character and leads us to exaggerate all the things that we don't have that we think we need. Which is exactly what she does here. I want you to notice again her response to the serpent in verse 2. I mentioned this a few minutes ago, but I want us to look at it again. She said this to the serpent We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. Now, stop there. This is very subtle but already we see she leaves out a word that God said. If you go back and look at verse um, 16 and 17 of chapter 2, where you see what God had told them, we see that God's exact words about what they could do were that they could eat of every tree of the garden. But she leaves out that word every. God seems to be emphasizing how great His provision is to them. Hey, hey, man and woman, you can eat of every tree in the garden. And she says, we can eat of the trees in the garden. Kind of leaves out that word every. Kind of forgetting about all of God's good provision. God emphasizes how great His provision is to them, but the serpent tempts her to question God's good provision. But it doesn't stop there, unfortunately. She continues by saying in verse 3, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But is that what God said? No, we've said not exactly. God told them they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he never said that they couldn't touch it. And so where God seemed to emphasize to them in his words his provision for them, the woman seems to be forgetting his provision and overemphasizing his rule, his restriction even adding to the rules that God has given. And in so doing, God seems to be harsher than he has revealed himself to be. The God that she is describing in Genesis 3 is a much harsher God and a less providing God than the God who God has revealed himself to be in Genesis chapter 2. But the temptation to forget God's good provision doesn't stop there. The serpent in verse 5 says, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But do you see what's wrong with that statement? Do you see the deception? He said, you'll be like God. But church, God had already made the man and woman like him in a way that was good for them. They had been created in his image. And what what greater gift than that to be made in the image of God? Satan says, you'll be like God if you eat from this. And I think God is behind the scenes going, but you're already like me. And the way that you're like me now is good for you. God wasn't holding out on them. God had provided a good garden with an abundance of good food and good water. God had created them in His image and given them everything that they needed to do what He had called them to do, to rule over His creation, and yet they were not satisfied with God's good provision. How quickly, church, we forget about all the good that God has done in our lives when we think that there is something we need that God hasn't given to us. The temptation to forget God's good provision didn't just happen in the garden. The pages of Scripture are filled with this temptation and with people falling prey to it. Let's just think how many times, if you've read the Old Testament, you've studied through it, how many times God commanded the people of Israel to remember, to remember all the good that He had done for them in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. He would say things like this, Don't forget how I brought you out of Egypt according to my own power. Don't forget how I delivered you from slavery. Don't forget. Why would he emphasize for them the good that he had done for them and tell them not to forget? Well, because he knew that their remembrance of his good provision would protect them from the temptation to think that he was a stingy God who was holding out on them. Which would then lead them to try to take matters into their own hands, to go their own way, to acquire what God was refusing to give them and thus stray from God in his life-giving ways. And unfortunately, that's exactly what the Israelites did. They kept forgetting all the good that God had done and it led them to constantly stray from the God who loved them and He was providing for them everything that they needed. And it shows exactly what we do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do the same thing. We covet what we don't have when we already have far more than we'll ever deserve. I truly believe that one of the greatest tools God has given us in our battle against temptation is, One of the greatest tools He's given us in our battle against temptation is a constant awareness of God's good provision in our lives in spite of the fact that we are so unworthy of it. And if we want our minds and our hearts to constantly overflow with this thankfulness to God for the provision that He's given to us, then we simply need to fix our eyes constantly upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps that is one reason the writer of Hebrews not only told Christians to lay aside, to cast off every weight and sin which clings so closely, but then he immediately said, looking to Jesus. Don't just try to cast it off, but cast it off looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we cast away sin? How do we flee temptation? By looking to Christ and all He's done for us on the cross. The woman took her eyes off of God's good provision and focused on what she didn't have. Which is exactly what the serpent wanted. And as we'll see next week, the question, this questioning of God's goodness, that is rejecting God's good word, questioning God's good motive, subverting God's good order, and forgetting God's good provision led the woman to sin against the good and holy God. And then her husband followed right in her footsteps. I hope that kind of slowly today, walking through this first temptation has helped us grow in our understanding of the subtle ways temptation works in our hearts and in our minds so that church will be more aware and more prepared to recognize temptation and fight against it. But friends, we need far more. Listen closely to this. Not done. We need far more than a deeper understanding of temptation in order to fight temptation in our own lives. If all we needed was a deeper understanding of temptation, God would have just sent us information. But a deeper understanding is not all we need. Church, we need a supernatural power to not merely help us, but to rescue us. And praise God, He has sent more than just information. He has sent His Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. And so the last truth I want to share with you today is this. Church, in closing, I want you to know this. We have to know this if we're going to battle against temptation well. Only Jesus provides us with rescue from temptation. Listen, if you walk out of here thinking, all right, I've got some little tips, I've got some tools, I've got a little bit better understanding about temptation, I can do this, you're gonna fall right on your face because you can't, and I can't. We need Jesus to rescue us from temptation. We live in a world where temptation is real and temptation is always a question of trusting God's goodness. But our good God has given us Jesus and only he provides us with rescue from temptation. You see, when the first human sinned, they had an advantage over us. They were perfect when they chose to sin. God created them with the ability to choose sin, but until they did sin, their hearts were perfect. But as we're going to look at later in chapter 3, Adam's sin resulted in all of us being born into sin, which means we start out with hearts that are bent away from God rather than hearts that are bent towards God. In fact, our hearts are so naturally wicked that we don't need a deceptive servant, serpent to tempt us to sin. God says that we have everything right inside of us to lead us astray into temptation. God's Word clearly says that that A lot of our temptation just comes from inside of us. Not from the serpent, but from our own hearts. We are sinners from the moment our life begins and then we prove that to be the case very quickly by falling prey to the temptations which comes our way. And understanding how temptation works may help us in the battle somewhat, but we need something more to rescue us from our failure to resist temptation. And that's where Jesus comes in. And He comes in as the rescuer. You see, the first temptation in the garden, church, should drive us to Jesus. To Jesus. Jesus, who perfectly withstood temptation by perfectly upholding God's Word in the wilderness, where Satan tried to use God's Word to tempt Jesus to sin, but where Jesus responded by quoting God's Word, using God's Word, in battle against Satan, and then obeying God's Word. Jesus, who perfectly withstood temptation when one of his best friends named Peter told Jesus that Jesus' death and resurrection, what Jesus had just predicted, would never happen. Peter said, that's not going to happen. You're not going to die and rise from the dead. And you know what Jesus said? He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus, who refused to reject the divine order. We're talking about subverting the order of creation. Jesus, who did not reject the divine order of the Godhead when He, the Son, submitted to His Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and as Paul said in, the Philippi, in, in the book to the, his letter to the Philippians, did not, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew the order and He stayed in His role as the Son, submitting to His Father. Jesus, who died on the cross to rescue us, from our failure to resist temptation. Jesus who died to give us new hearts in place of our sin and darkened hearts. Jesus who taught us how to battle against temptation by teaching us to run to God for help. Jesus said, pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He said to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus, Jesus of whom it is written. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. I just wonder if you're feeling the guilt of your failure to resist temptation today. I wonder if today you're feeling the the guilt of failing to resist temptation. You know what we call failing to resist temptation? We call it sin. Sin. I wonder if today you are living under the weight of that sin. My plea to you, God's plea to you, is to look unto Christ. To look to Jesus who died to rescue you from your sin. To repent of your sin and trust in Jesus receiving His full and complete salvation. His full and complete forgiveness who will wash you clean from that sin. Perhaps you're a Christian here today but you find yourself struggling under the weight of temptation. Is that you today? Struggling under the weight of temptation as a follower of Jesus? Then my prayer for you is simply this. Look to Jesus. Continue looking to Jesus who continues to rescue us as we keep our eyes on Him. To draw near to Him for help. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, Christians, hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, this isn't a once in a while thing. This drawing near to the throne of grace isn't just something that we need to do on a Sunday morning, once a week. Drawing near to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need as we face temptation is a moment by moment thing because temptation is a moment by moment thing. Church, we face temptation with hope. Listen, it's real. It's all around us. And it's so easy to question God's goodness. But we face the temptation with hope. For God's Word says this, no temptation, please be encouraged today by this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I just want you to know today that Jesus is that way of escape. Your own ability to resist temptation is not your way of escape. Jesus is your way of escape. And so let us run to Him for mercy. Let us draw near to Him for help. And let us walk close to Him for endurance in this race of life where temptation is waiting and lurking around every corner. When God's people are tempted, church, may the world see us not being driven into sin, but may the world see us as we face temptation being driven to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. And God, I just pray that we would respond in obedience. God, if there's someone here today who has never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, God, I pray right now in their heart, they would cry out to You. That they would draw near to that throne of grace. And they would find mercy and and grace to help them in their time of needing salvation. God, I pray that they would confess their sin to You. They would be broken over their sin before You. And they would receive with thankful and glad hearts Your gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. God, right now, if there's someone who has never trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that You would draw their hearts to You. I pray that that man, that woman, that boy, that girl would believe in Jesus for salvation. And God, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Heavenly Father, would You help us to walk in faithfulness each day? Resisting temptation, not out of our own power and strength, but because You have sent a divine rescuer and we are leaning into Him. We are depending upon Him moment by moment to give us the strength that we need to overcome temptation in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church family, I just want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed just for a minute. We're just going to spend a moment just reflecting on God's Word before we sing. And I just want you to search your heart and ask God to search your heart. If there's any temptation that you're dealing with, would you just take this moment and just ask the Lord to help you? There's some sin that you need to confess. You take this moment, you confess that that to the Lord. Let's just be still and quiet before the Lord. You take to the Lord whatever is on your heart right now. Heavenly Father, may this not be something that we just do once in a while. Father, may we discipline ourselves to make this a a daily practice where we just stop before you. We quiet our hearts. We think about the reality of temptation. We consider our own frailty and our inability in and of ourselves to resist temptation, And we cry out to you for help. And God, we thank you that you are a God who helps. Even more than that, you are a God who rescues. So fathers, we spend a few moments as a church family responding in singing songs of prayer and songs of praise to You. God, may we do so from hearts that are overflowing with thankfulness for the good provision of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.